Now the talk tonight is about the heart's release. I'd like to begin with a poem by Mary Oliver, and it's from her new book called Why I Wake Early, and it's called Mindful. Every day I see or I hear something that more or less kills me with delight, that leaves me like a needle in the haystack of light. It it is what I was born for, to look, to listen, to lose myself inside this soft world, to instruct myself over and over in joy and acclamation. Nor am I talking about the exceptional, the fearful, the dreadful, the very extravagant, but of the ordinary, the common, the very drab, the daily presentations. Oh, good scholar, I say to myself, how can you help but grow wise with such teachings as these? the untrimmable light of the world, the ocean's shine, the prayers that are made out of grass. Losing ourselves inside this soft world is an aspect of the loving-kindness practice And um, I think that the loving-kindness practice really helps us um, soften our resistance to how things are in this world. I have found it really um, wonderful, this retreat, as I walk up the stairs to go upstairs to do interviews. There's a, um, someone has put a, a peony bud in a vase just one peony. Uh, and it, over the last days since, since this course started, the bud would open, you know, just a little bit, and a little bit more, and a little bit more. <laughs> I hope you've all seen that. Uh, it's just, and it's kind of just thrilling, you know. <laughs> and here, this is so much of life, it's just that this, in some ways, that's very ordinary. And one time when I was walking by it, it just felt like a prayer, you know, just just the most perfect prayer. And then I had this thought, wow, time, you know, doing time, (laughs) trying to speed it up with, you know, the photography that you could watch it going faster. And I was like, wow, why would I want to do that? You know, it's just, it's taken days for it to open. And then, you know, it died. And then someone put a new bud there, and it's all closed up again. Um, and that it's like extraordinary to know that that's what our heart does in this practice. You know, it's meant to become open and vulnerable and become aware of the birth, life, and death of each moment, of the breath, of sound, of metta, and of life itself. In one of the famous um, Buddha's sermons, um, he just held up a flower as the sermon, an open flower. And there was one being in the audience that understood you know, so when we think about the heart's release or awakening, you can kind of contemplate the opening of a flower. You know, awakening is this opening to how life is, and that complete opening is complete understanding. And this complete understanding isn't done with intellectual thought. It's done by uh, opening to our direct experience of the universe and really letting ourselves be deeply touched by the universe. The Buddha taught that the world rests on suffering and that understanding that helps us to understand why it's hard for us to open. 
You know, it, we all, I think, really want to open. It sounds good to be liberated. You know, it sounds good to be living with an open, loving heart, wise heart. Um, and we all want to put in our time for that. And it takes, it takes patience to start to understand why it's so hard. And when, the, when a flower opens, it's not just opening to light. It opens to thunderstorms that might be coming soon. We've had this beautiful summer day, but rain will come and coolness and cold again. You know, so the, you know, we might open a bit and say, oh boy, it's summer, and then lightning happens. And what do you do with that? And that's just a metaphor for this range of joy and sorrow that can happen. And another level of that is that the Buddha taught with each moment of consciousness, there's a pleasant or unpleasant or neutral feeling. And that's a mental feeling with each sound, with each sight, with each smell, with each taste, with each body sensation, with each thought, emotion. There's this river of change, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. It's, it's like we're born, when we take birth in this body, we're born into this world of vulnerability. And so we like to think that if we open, that we're going to bargain for all the pleasant stuff. And that that's, you know, we make a good case for it. And then we feel betrayed by God or whatever when it hurts sometimes. Or it hurts like hell sometimes because it keeps changing. And we have very little control over that change. So the heart's release, part of that heart's release is really releasing control. Letting life be, you know, and this is where kindness, loving kindness and wisdom come together. It's just this deep acceptance of the vulnerability of all of life. And really getting a sense that when you look around this room, that we're not alone in that. You know, and if you look outside of this room, that we're not alone in that. You know, whether you watch the turtles right now are starting to move around and lay their eggs, and they can get run over so easily. You know, or, you know, it's just like spring can be such a time of birth, but I always find that, you know, Pleasant Street is such a strange name for this road sometimes in the spring because you see a lot of death on this road. You know, it's not just... Spring is a time where some beings don't make it. Some, birth, some births don't happen. Um, and some do. And so it's, again, that range of really feeling the um, joy for the beings who survive and really feeling the compassion for those who don't. So the question is, you know, what is protection? You know, what is protection? What is freedom? You know, and what is control? What is a healthy attempt at control? And what is an unhealthy attempt at protection? Our usual conditioned way that we try to protect ourselves, and this is conditioned in the Buddhist cosmology, this is conditioned over lifetimes, that when something pleasant happens and it starts to pass, that our attempt to control is, is really, it's, it's vulnerable. I mean, it's, it's understandable that we attempt to control by holding on to what's actually not true. <laughs> we hold on to, to the um, pleasure that's actually passing. And so at that point when we hold on, that's when we have the sense of being a separate self. We've separated ourselves from the truth. We're not, no longer in union Duality happens. That's a moment of becoming. And again, it it requires a lot of compassion for ourselves to understand that, that of course, (laughs) you know, that if we don't understand this, this is what we would do. And this is what is so sad about the human world, is that it's really that people have ignorance. They don't understand that that attempt to control is a form of suffering because we've lost touch with the truth. And then, yet again, when there's unpleasantness, when the unpleasant appears, 
we tend to either withdraw from that with fear or we push it away with aversion or irritation or grumpiness or whatever. And that pushing away or movement, again, that movement, rather than letting it be, is when the becoming happens. It's the birth of a separate self. And it's because we don't understand that. We've lost touch again with the river of change, with the truth, with the way, with the flow. We all know these words. Um, That's when we suffer. That's what the Buddha is saying. That's that the world rests on that suffering. And so when we come when we come to start questioning the prison, the prison that we've gotten into in terms of our own defense system, our own attempt to protect ourselves, and you know, that questioning, that inquiry, like what is going on? You know, why isn't this working so well? <laughs> um we st- that, that questioning is the beginning of starting to see that maybe we can be free. So the prison is really getting caught or lost in aversion or attachment. It's not that that, that reaction to pleasure or pain is a problem. The reaction itself isn't the problem. It's not understanding it and buying into it, believing it, that, that we get in trouble, that we suffer. So it takes, again, a great, great amount of wisdom and compassion um, to relate to our attempts at manipulation, our attempts at control. So we start to replace our old defense system, the closed bud, <laughs> closed flower bud. We start to open to how, how life is because we're more and more protected by mindfulness. We're more, more and more protected by compassion or loving kindness or empathetic joy or equanimity. And that, you know, it's called a gradual awakening because it, it, it takes a lot of patience. You know, it's like strengthening a muscle over time. You know, it's like you know, you know the patience it takes to bring about any kind of change in the body or mind. I find that um, bowing for me has been a very important practice over my years of of, um, doing this practice. And at first, I kind of didn't want to bow, and um, I was cynical about it. Uh, And it, you know, at first I would sort of be, like, kind of go in the hall and go, you know. (laughs) Um, And, uh, you know, there wasn't that much education about it, and nobody required us to do it, which I think is really healthy. Um, and over time, when I started really just exploring for myself a whole body bow, like putting my body on the earth and putting my forehead on the earth, it felt wonderful. You know, and it wasn't, for me, it wasn't like I was bowing to a Buddha statue. I first started bowing to the flowers because I have a connection to flowers. Uh, And then slowly... I just started feeling that feeling of just surrendering my willpower. You know, sur- just instead of letting aversion and attachment manipulate my life, you know, that this feeling of sort of putting my forehead on Mother Earth again, that Mother Earth as a witness, that there's something deeper than that. So this isn't, I'm not saying this to ask you to bow, it's just my own sense of... Um, understanding that that arose out of, you know, that form or structure arose out of understanding that our life can be an offering. Our whole body and mind can be an offering to freedom and love. And that that's, you know, if if those of you who've never seen it, that that's a lot of what it's about. I was in Burma again this year in uh, January uh, teaching with Sayadaw Ulakana and Usumana was there translating. And um, 
the place that we teach at is in Upper Burma and, and a place called Chaswa Monastery. And it's a very old monastery. Um, and the area of Burma is called the Sagain Hills, and it's called or known as the spiritual heart of Burma. And Stephen was allowed to go up there many years ago um, and um, developed a relationship with the villagers and the, the uh, abbot, Sayada Ulakana, there. Um, and it's, it's quite a privilege to be allowed to come in there and, and develop these relationships with the villagers, the Irrawaddy River flowing by um, with the monks and nuns there. Um, and when we have time, sometimes we walk around the hills and just visit monasteries and nunneries. And now that Usumana speaks such fluent Burmese, it's quite a joy to to roam the hills. Again, we don't always have much time, but um, this year uh, we went to see the Seirao that we nicknamed the Happy Seirao. Uh, and for me, meeting him was like... Um, kind of meeting a kindred spirit, Sayadaw. Um, and he's kind of like talks with his hands and he's joyful and laughs all the time and jumps around. And I had just never met a Sayadaw like that. So, of course, I was kind of <laughs> really excited. <laughs> um, and we had several meetings with him. And I wanted just to describe... I mean, I'd like to describe them all, but... Um, at the end of the retreat, you know, you know, in the West we um, often talk about generosity at the end of a retreat. And um, in Burma, that would be done first because g- generosity is considered the heart of the practice or the foundation of the practice, which I'll talk about in a minute. Um, so the manager of the retreat um, wanted to go see the happy Sayado and just ask him a little bit about dana because or generosity because it's been it was so much fun to talk with him about other things uh, but we were rushed and it <laughs> you know we barely had time to run over to this monastery and ask him about dana um, and so we went in bowed and um, usumana translated and um, he didn't really understand what a Donna rap was, you know, or, you know, just like, it was so foreign to his culture, you know. It's like they just kind of learn it when they're born by osmosis. Um, Anyway, Greg asked about Donna, and um, he, like, just started laughing. Ha, 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 (laughs) generosity, ha, ha, ha. You want to know about you know, Donna, basically, you want to know about generosity? And he went over to the altar and he got a bunch of oranges and he just kind of threw them in Greg's lap, you know, and he's like, that's Donna. (laughs) We were all like, whoa. You know, and it was just like, to him, it's so obvious that everything in the world is, is about generosity, everything. And he just, just got funnier and funnier. He went over and he got bananas, and he, you want to know about generosity? Ha, 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 this is generosity. And then, then he got really going, you know, and then he's like, you want to know about generosity? Look at this roof. Look at this building. That's generosity. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> it was just, but, you know, with him, it's like everything is so astoundingly ordinary but so astoundingly, obviously spiritual. And he was really asking us to look at the, the floor. Look at the, the walls. Just look at, just look at everything. All of this is given to us. You know, it's so precious. And we don't receive it. We don't receive this love, you know. And it was just such a moving teaching because, you know, it was like his understanding just kind of and laughter just kind of went through us. It just touched us so deeply. And then he said, you know, do you want to know about Donna? And he sat down, got really serious. You want to know about generosity? Look at your body. Just look at your body. You know, and the, just the preciousness of human birth. You know, what have we been given? You know, and that's why I love bowing, because for me, it's like I can offer this body as an offering to 
wisdom and love, you know, to my birth, to know that this is what I'm doing here, this is what we're doing here, learning to cultivate wisdom and compassion. And when we start to get that it's all about receiving life and death and generosity, you know, we start to be able to receive a breath. Ordinary, ordinary, but wonderful. Or receive an unpleasant thought. Or receive sadness or grief. Receive joy. Receive imperfection. You know, it's all about receiving connecting with what is happening and acceptance and then not taking it personally (laughs) not taking the change personally so often a lot of the teachings emphasize letting things go and for me um, I had to rephrase that to letting things be you know, because more and more I just keep finding that if I can really open, receive what's happening, accept it, that it really does change by itself. There's no need to really effort at letting it go. It just, it'll come and go by itself. And I have such incredible trust in that process. It's really trusting the process of how your life is and showing up for it is all you need because the very the very fact of showing up for it connecting with it will allow wisdom and love to develop it just does and what matters is our motivation so we hear that things can liberate themselves and they do if we get out of the way. And what is it that gets out of the way? Well, the controller, (laughs) the aversion and attachment, starts to get out of the way. We don't have to do anything about it. And, you know, I think that we often long for freedom, but do we long for renunciation? You know, this is a really interesting question. You know, when you really get all riled up about your spiritual practice, do you really long for renunciation? And I think that this is, again, like generosity, renunciation, are the real foundations of being able to let things be, to accept. And I've found, again, over over the course of my practice that renunciation is a voluntary letting go of anything extra, You know, when you're on retreat, you're voluntarily letting go of so much so that you can be simple enough to develop this kindness and love and wisdom. It's what allows us to see clearly. And one of the most inspiring um, stories about the Buddha for me is when he was just, you know, going through years and years of ascetic practice. And was you know his just bones were showing and just starving um, and pushing his body beyond limit, just torturing himself for the you know just longing for freedom so much. And, and this is after eons of perfecting himself and practice. This was the Buddha to be before he became fully enlightened. Uh, and it, there was a, a young woman who was going out um, to make offerings to her ancestral spirits. Her parents had given her some food to go to the altar, the family altar. And she saw this person starving. And instead of offering this food to the um, spirits, she offered this rice gruel to the Buddha. This is the foundation of this practice the Buddha-to-be, received this offering of food and it made him strong enough, healthy enough to have the strength to completely let go, to completely understand, to completely be touched by the universe. And, you know, when I'm in Burma, I feel like there are certain people who reenact that. They take it literally. 
And it's so touching when you're with beings who really understand this power of generosity. It's like the staff here are, are what are, are allowing us to do this. We're, we're, we're so dependent, but it's so hard for us to let ourselves feel that vulnerable and really get that it's out of that ca- their care, their kindness, if we receive it, that it really protects our spiritual practice. This is, this is how metta is a protection. There's so many ways, basically, what, that's what this talk is about. Um, so, so the ability to receive, really, and be touched by life is the, f- the foundation of the heart's release, of liberation. We know that babies will die without affection. You know, and I feel like, I really feel as I'm getting older, and I've seen my sister die recently, and my, my dad die, my best friend from childhood die, um, relationship changing. Um, I think that watching people get really dependent when they get old, but also as at this age being really aware of my responsibilities of taking care of the young, um, just to think that we're born so dependent, and when we get old we get that dependent again. And, you know, it's like, I don't like that. <laughs> I don't like that. You know, I've become an adult and I feel like I have it together. And that you can see if you live that long, you get totally dependent again. Like, who designed that? You know, I mean, <laughs> what a bad joke it seems like, you know. But it's like, it's interesting that the foundation of the Buddha's teaching is this, the, the Buddha to be allowing himself to be dependent, to be cared for, to take in food. So we all need each other, you know, and it's not, um, it's so beautiful. There's a cook in... Um, that comes to Chazwa Monastery to take care of us every year. And when I first went to Chazwa and was talking with him, he felt this real karmic connection with Westerners. And he feels like it's his gift this lifetime to take care of us so that we don't get sick when we go there. It's one of his real strong um, motivations this lifetime is to help us when we come to Burma. And I can feel his love in the food so directly. It's so inspiring and so motivating. Um, And I'm so grateful to him because my body isn't that strong, and I was afraid to go to Burma because I was afraid I'd get really sick. Um, And so this year, I hadn't been for three years um, because of all this family dukkha, death and stuff. And so um, I wanted to bring him a present, a really good present. And I like, was thinking about it, and the manager that manages every year told me he really wants um... <laughs> Obviously, I didn't get it. You know, I still don't quite get it. But it's like he plays the violin, and one year I brought him a violin. And so this year he wanted kind of like a microphone. <laughs> he wanted a pickup microphone, right? <laughs> what was it? A pickup. He wanted a pickup. I didn't pick it up. <laughs> I went to Radio Shack, and apparently I got a karaoke thing. <laughs> and <laughs> oh, and I was so proud of this gift. Like I care. It was heavy. You know, it didn't fit in my suitcase. Like I lugged it. It was expensive. You know, I thought, oh boy. You know, this is a great gift. And I got there, and the manager told me. It wasn't the right gift. And I was so upset. Like, I was just, like, mortified, you know. And I just wanted to give him this present so bad. And then I just couldn't bear to give it to him. For So the weeks <laughs> weeks went by. And it was, like, the day before we were going to go. And I was like, oh. And so, like, I uh, went, you know, to dinner that night, and Usuma was there to translate, and I was like telling him all about how much I had wanted him to get him this good present, you know, and there was, like, he was waiting and waiting, and I was like crying, like, (laughs) 
by the time like I was going to give him this karaoke microphone. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and so he looked at it, and he knew, you know, at that point that I was humiliated and upset. And he said, and this, he said it in English. He has like a little bit of English. And he was so filled with compassion. And he said, oh, Michelle, this was a good mistake. (laughs) (laughs) And it was so, you know, it's like any time you make a mistake, if you could have that voice of just compassion that says, oh, it's a good mistake. You know, it was such, it was so beautiful. Next year. (laughs) So the question might be, you know, what is loving kindness? Why is it, you know, the foundation, this kindness, this, um, that supports us so well in life? And it's really the glue in life. It's what holds us so that we can be with what is. We can be with how things are. So to be able to equally value love, connection, as well as wisdom, emptiness. You know, this is really our challenge, to value both, because it's a paradox. To be able to really get, you know, that love tells me I'm everything. That's a loss of a separate self through understanding the truth of interconnectedness. Wisdom tells me I'm nothing. That's understanding the loss of a separate self through understanding that there is no separate self. Wisdom. And they can seem so paradoxical. Don't they seem opposite? And yet, you know, the heart's relief releases when they both come together for us. The little um, detail that it can be difficult in terms of the heart opening like a flower opening, and then we start to understand that we want to replace the defense system of aversion and attachment with mindfulness and metta, um, is that then we decide that we're going to reject our defense system. We decide, okay, I'm going to rip my petals open as quickly as possible. That's us, you know, Westerners. It's like, I want to be fully enlightened now. You know, and we just like step on the gas. And, you know, it's just, again, it's so interesting that it really requires starting to make space for the purification, to, to allow us to see the wanting. It, the process is one of uncovering and starting to accept when we want things, when we cling to things, when we're aversive to things, fear, whatever. This is a um, poem by William Stafford uh, from a book called The Darkness Around Us is Deep. It's called For My Young Friends Who Are Afraid. There is a country to cross you will find in the corner of your eye in the quick slip of your foot, air far down, a snap that might have caught, and maybe for you, for me, a high passing voice that finds its way by being afraid. That country is there for us, carried as it is crossed. What you fear will not go away. It will take you into yourself and bless you and keep you. That's the world, and we all live there. Do you have that sense that you can navigate, that you can find your way by being afraid? I mean, it's just so extraordinary, a poem. Vulnerability. You know, that's the nature of our heart is to be open, 
it is to be soft. That's how we come in. And to allow the fear rather than to have to get rid of it, to to know that that's how we find ourselves, really, to connect, is, is extraordinary. A lot of the practice is a purification of our motivation. And you know, this morning when we were joking about lowering expectation, it's really the purification of motivation happens as we lower the purification of motivation happens as we lower expectation. So instead of thinking, oh, I have to get rid of wanting, it's much more that we start to understand it. We let it be. And then we see that we don't have to do anything with it. It just will, it will come and go by itself. And it's the very resistance to it that's the suffering. That's all. So this is where the metta practice comes in because the metta helps soften that resistance. And we don't feel like, you know, there's something wrong with us that we're seeing more greed or more wanting or more lust, that, that, that that's good. It's good practice to see fear. It's good practice to see the lightning coming closer and closer. <laughs> I think it's going to be a good one. <laughs> There's a um, CD I've been listening to recently called um, uh, By the Flaming Lips. And um, there's a song that I really like. And I'd like to, to read you the lyrics. It's, they're beautiful. I was waiting on a moment, but that moment never came. All the billion other moments were just slipping on away. I must have been drifting. I was, wait- I was wanting you to love me, but your loving never came. All the other love around me was just wasting all away. I must have been drifting. This is the heart of the practice. You know, we, we wait for just that peak experience in the day, yeah? Like we want, we just wait for that few moments that we find acceptable. And then the rest are sort of junk, right? You know? They're not good enough. And it's the same with people or a person, you know? We just have these few moments that we love, you know, the, the kind of, when it's that divine love, and then the rest is not acceptable, And the practice is one of starting to wear away that desire for that perfection or what we think of what we want. And we start being able to get that a moment of sleepiness is okay. And that we can care about ourselves there, that we can develop more love for ourselves and others. You know, this is really just the heart of being a happy person. (laughs) is this storm distracting or what (laughs) well (laughs) so what we think of as obstacles to our (laughs) dharma talk (laughs) is really an opportunity (laughs) to focus (laughs) (laughs) Maybe we should stop the tape. Yeah, um, okay. So I'd like to encourage you to explore where you disconnect in the course of your day. Where is it that you start to feel like you're starting to judge yourself or your practice? Where do you start feeling like you're no good or worthless? What is it in relationship to? Is it when you're eating? Is it when you take an extra helping? You know, do you judge others for taking an extra helping? You know, I find that the... Um, the, the, <laughs> the dining room of a meditation center is like a peak of judgment. You know, it's like the peak of... The, the thinking mind just, it's just, it all hell breaks loose, yeah? You know, it's like, and, 
when I first started practicing, I used to hate it. I used to dread going in the dining room because I just, I thought that judging was so bad and I was afraid of other people's judgments. I was afraid of my own. I didn't think I should be judging others. And that was a place that I started to learn to soften around judging. You know, it's just judging. And you can expect that other people are judging you there. Just look at your own mind there. What's happening in your mind is happening in everybody else's mind. And you know, the more you can accept that you're judging, the more you're going to accept that other people are judging. And one of the reasons that in practice, especially in a Vipassana retreat, but even in a Metta retreat, how you protect your practice by not looking around all the time, the reason for it is not to just not look around. The reason is to get enough concentration and stillness so that when you do look, you'll see the judgment. And you won't get caught in it. It's not to stop the judgment. It's to be able to see it clearly enough so that you're not believing it. So check it out. It's like when you look at somebody's sandals, there'll be a judgment. When you look at somebody's clothes, there'll be a judgment. When you look at somebody's plate, how much they're putting on their plate, it, you know, if it's a little bit, they'll be, eh, they never eat anything. They're eating like a bird. You know, I mean, it's like we have, <laughs> what's wrong with them? You know, it's like, and then the, the other person who's just piling it on, you know, it's like they're taking too much. You know, it's like this is what we do. And so what is Freedom. And this is really what's so great about a retreat and coming back to them. Freedom isn't getting rid of any of that. Freedom is just accepting all of that and not getting caught in it. It's just judging. And, you know, the instruction and practice will change over time. If you're new to the practice, it takes a lot of strength to just get enough space to just notice that thinking is happening. And that takes a lot of years of practice to be able to get the space around thought enough to not be so bothered by it, that it'll be more background, that you'll feel that you will start to not have to get rid of it and that you're not battling it. But if you're an old student, then there's a different way to relate to thinking. And for me, like when I, when I relate to thinking, I just treat it as my system, my body and mind, is trying to get my attention. But it's a different way of listening to it. I don't listen to it as really important thoughts that are happening every moment. I think of it as just like the baby cow is trying to get my attention. Most of thought is just your system is trying to get your attention. It's going right, 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 It's talking to you all the time, right, right, right. And if, if you think that you're going to get rid of it, no, but if you can befriend it without repressing it, but without indulging the content of it, that's freedom. And so the middle way is a really interesting thing. It's like when the when the Buddha-to-be found out that starving wasn't the way to go, but he also found that, you know, he wasn't eating heaps of food. And that's hard for us human beings. It's easier for us to fast than to be moderate. You know, and that's, that's what a retreat again is like. It's like we have this opportunity to look at being what moderation is. And, you know, eating, eating too much, you know, we don't feel so good. Eating too little, we're not getting enough nourishment. And it's the same with emotion and thought. It's like we're not trying to get rid of thought, but moderation is letting them come and go and learning to believe the important ones. Emotion is information, anger, sadness, loneliness, excitement over-exuberance, joy, love. It's information. And it's learning again, how do we be moderate? How do we get that we don't have to attach to one or two moments or a few moments with a being 
when all that love is wasted away in all those other moments because we're attached to this little crumb. One time I wanted to um, (laughs) put a few crumbs in a frame and put them on the wall and just kind of use that as an altar for a while. Because we're, you know, we're suckers. We're suckers for just this little bit of pleasure. And we reject the rest of life. We reject our thought. We reject our emotion. We reject other thoughts, other emotions. And the practice is one of starting to go deeper than that. The middle way, not repression, not indulgence. And that takes again and again a valuing and respect of both love and wisdom. Softening over and over. The softening of the heart wears down the need for control. The softening of the loving kindness wears down the need for control. And so that we need less and less the aversion and attachment as a defense system and we can tolerate more and more vulnerability. Life just as it is. And even self-hatred attacks are really just a form of avoiding that vulnerability. The cruelty that children have with each other, or the cruelty adults can have with each other, again, are like an avoidance of pain, avoidance of vulnerability. We can think something's so wrong with us for being vulnerable, but it's really the true state of the heart. This is a quotation from Dogen, the great Zen teacher Dogen, that I really like a lot. He said, Although mountains seem to belong to the country, they really belong to those who love them. Although mountains seem to belong to the country, they really belong to those who love them. And this is so true for everything. It's true for those who take care of the land rather than who own it. It's true for all of our friendships, family relationships. It's really who do we feel connected to. Sometimes it's not the ones we're born in with. And it's learning how to work with that. You know, it's, again, who do we belong to? It's really those who love us and who we love. And that's finding the heart. It's finding and valuing connection. And out of that connection, we see that only connection happens when there's pure motivation, when there's a pure heart. And when we're really trying to manipulate people out of our aversion and judgment and attachment, the person will never feel safe and change will never happen. And it's the same with intimacy with ourselves. It's like it's out of really letting ourselves be, truly connecting with how we are, that the deepest change will happen. It's a change of relating to ourselves with wisdom and love. And the more we learn how to relate to ourselves with wisdom and love, we relate to others with wisdom and love. Then there's more and more heart's release. And that's our spiritual journey. And it's a precious one, having this precious human birth to do that with Um, getting that this is all coming out of dana, generosity, and the kindness of those who support our practice. Um, When you start to let it in, it's truly a noble path. Let's sit together for a minute. Let, Let the storm appear and disappear by itself.
May we have the courage to open to sunlight, rain, lightning, darkness, love. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.